Hi everyone, welcome back to another episode of A-Minder. I'm Judy, and today I'll be hosting part 2 of our May 2021 Clinical Markers of AD episode. If you haven't already, you can check out part 1 hosted by Maria, released one episode back. Part 1 focuses more on cognitive testing in AD, whereas today we'll be looking at other measures such as clinical, psychiatric, or motor testing. Just 10 papers to go through today, so let's get right into it after the intro. Welcome to Aminder, a podcast where we summarize the latest publications on Alzheimer's disease for you, so you can spend more time doing awesome research. For every month, you'll find a series of episodes by theme, and each comes with a bibliography. Whether you're in the lab, on the bus, or cooking your meal, we hope you find this podcast useful and accessible. Alright everyone, we have a bunch of cool studies to learn about today, including sections on clinical testing, motor assessments, semantic dementia, and even one paper at the end on sleep. Just a quick reminder that we simply put together brief summaries of the following abstracts, and we don't validate the methods used in these papers, so be sure to read up on the original papers if you're interested in learning about the details. We've put together a numbered bibliography that you can find in the episode notes. We have these for every episode, and we also have bibliographies for topics that we weren't able to cover in episodes this month. The link to all the bibliographies is also available in the episode notes. Throughout the episode, you'll hear me refer to Alzheimer's disease as AD and mild cognitive impairment as MCI. Now getting on with today's episode. Since it's a shorter one, we won't be taking any breaks, so let's power through these 10 papers. The first section features four studies that use more clinical or psychiatric type assessments in AD. This includes Lewy body pathology, dementia in the context of Down syndrome, and different AD biomarkers. Paper number one is titled Harmonizing Neuropsychological Assessment for Mild Neurocognitive Disorders in Europe. It's found in the journal Alzheimer's Dementia by first author Bocardi and last author Kliegel, both of which are from the University of Geneva in Switzerland. The authors put together a workshop designed to harmonize MCI assessment by inviting clinicians and experts from European, American, and Australian organizations. They formed a standard battery that was consistent with the U.S. uniform dataset and implemented adaptations such as tests specific to typical AD and frontotemporal dementia. This also included consensus definitions of cognitively normal individuals, classification of age, sex, and education, as well as criteria for minimum sample sizes. The authors suggest that their study improved the consistency of neurocognitive disorder diagnosis across countries worldwide. Next up, paper number two, titled Clinical Pathological Comparison of Patients with Autopsy-Confirmed Alzheimer's Disease, Dementia with Lewy Bodies, and Mixed Pathology. It's from the journal Alzheimer's Dementia Amsterdam by first author Chatterjee and last author Siong. Both are from our very own University of British Columbia in Canada. This retrospective study looked into the co-occurrence of AD neuropathological change and Lewy body pathology. As a quick review, Lewy bodies are protein deposits that develop in neurons and cause impairments in thinking and memory, leading to the second most common type of dementia after AD, called Lewy body dementia. Subjects included patients of varying severities for AD neuropathological change and Lewy body pathology. The authors compared clinical and pathological features in these subjects, as well as Lewy body pathology, 
within the medulla for patients with and without autonomic dysfunction. They report that patients with a mixture of both AD and Lewy body pathology at autopsy were more likely to have had dementia with Lewy bodies. The researchers also found an association between autonomic dysfunction and Lewy body pathology overall, but not for the medulla alone. Lastly, AD pathology severity was correlated with cerebral atrophy, while Lewy body pathology was not. The author suggests that the clinical signs of patients with both AD and Lewy body pathology differ from those with either one alone. Paper number three talks about dementia evaluation in the context of Down syndrome. It's titled, The Behavioral and Psychological Symptoms of Dementia in Down Syndrome Scale, Optimization and Further Validation. This paper is found in the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease by first author Decker and last author Dedane, both affiliated with the University of Groningen in the Netherlands. The authors had previously developed a scale for looking at behavior changes in the last six months compared to pre-existing lifelong behavior. The current study aimed to optimize and evaluate the scale using a sample of over 500 subjects with Down syndrome. If you didn't know, People with Down syndrome have high rates of developing AD later in life. Participants were classified into the no-dementia, questionable dementia, and clinically diagnosed dementia groups. By performing interviews and comparing changes in scores across items on the evaluation scale, the authors found changes in frequency and severity on several types of behavior, such as anxiety, sleep, and eating and drinking. As you might expect, The frequency of these behaviors was highest in the clinically diagnosed dementia group, intermediate in the questionable dementia subjects, and lowest in the no-dementia cohort. The number of subjects showing increased irritable, apathetic, and depressive behaviors was prominent in the questionable dementia group, and so the author suggests that these changes may act as early signs of AD in patients with Down syndrome. Now for our last study in the clinical indicators of AD section, paper number four involves amyloid beta, which is a protein biomarker for AD and is measured through positron emission tomography, or PET imaging. The study is titled, Subjective Cognitive Complaints at Age 70, Associations with Amyloid and Mental Health. The study is from the Journal of Neurology, Neurosurgery, and Psychiatry by first author Pavisic and last author Schott and both from the University College London in the UK. The study looked into the association between amyloid beta, anxiety, depression, objective cognition, and family history of dementia in the context of subjective cognitive decline. Subjects included cognitively unimpaired participants around 70 years of age, all of which completed the MyCOG Subjective Cognitive Decline Questionnaire. They determined amyloid status using PET imaging and assessed objective cognition through the preclinical Alzheimer cognitive composite test. The authors found a positive correlation between anxiety and MICOG scores, particularly in women. MICOG scores were also higher in the amyloid positive participants, but were not associated with objective cognition or family history of dementia. The authors conclude that anxiety symptoms are important to consider when evaluating subjective cognitive decline especially in older adults. Now let's move on to the motor assessment section of the episode with just three studies in total. The first two papers both involve cognitive frailty in AD, defined as the combination of both cognitive impairment and physical frailty, which is a common symptom in early-stage dementia. Paper number five is called Frailty is Associated with Frontal Cortex-Related Cognitive Function in Patients with Alzheimer's Disease. 
This one is from the Journal of Geriatric Psychiatry and Neurology by first author Chang, who is affiliated with the Catholic Mercy Hospital in Shinshu County, Taiwan, and last author Li, uh, who is from the Kaohsiung Municipal Kaishuan Psychiatric Hospital in Kaohsiung, Taiwan. The title kind of gives it away, but the authors hypothesize that a decline in neuropsychological function related to the frontal cortex would be associated with frailty in AD patients. They assessed cognitive function in 160 patients with mild AD using the Cognitive Ability Screening Instrument, and also measured things like depressive mood, hand grip strength, and normal gait speed. The authors found more depressive symptoms and lower hand grip strength in subjects deemed as frail or pre-frail. Higher level of frailty was also correlated with increased age, slowing of normal gait speed, and worse cognitive function. Those with depressive symptoms had a higher chance of having high frailty as well, compared to those with no depression. The authors conclude that a multidimensional approach is needed to measure the impact of interventions targeted on frailty in AD. Moving on, paper number 6 can be found in the journal Gerontology, and it's titled Digital Biomarkers of Cognitive Frailty, the Value of Detailed Gait Assessment Beyond Gait Speed. It's by first author Zhou and last author Najafi, both from the Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas. The study used wearable technology on older adults with or without cognitive frailty to identify any gait biomarkers or differences in manner of walking. Their performance was based on the single task of walking 10 meters without any cognitive distractions and also a dual task where they walk while counting backwards from a random number. Some gait parameters the authors looked at included gait speed, stride length, and gait unsteadiness. The cognitive frailty group showed worse gait performance in both single-task and dual-task walking compared to the other cohort, with greatest impairment in dual-task gait speed. The authors suggest that gait performance as measured through wearable sensors could act as a potential biomarker of cognitive frailty in older adults. Our last paper for this section is pretty unique as it looks into handwriting deficits in AD. Quite appropriately, it's titled Handwriting in Alzheimer's Disease. This paper is from the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease by first author DeLazer and last author Jamshidian, and both from the Medical University of Innsbruck in Austria. The authors mentioned that agraphia, also known as the loss of ability to write, is a key feature in AD. The study aimed to identify and characterize handwriting deficits in AD patients as compared to healthy controls. They performed alphabetical and non-alphabetical writing tasks, and the assessment included features such as writing pressure, writing velocity, and strokes per second. For their results, I find it super interesting how the AD patients had a lower writing velocity and lower frequency of up and down strokes in both tasks. Some even showed omissions or substitutions of letters. The authors explained that patients who showed less errors when writing a sentence had more automated handwriting movements. In conclusion, they state that there are many different components to consider when studying writing disorders in AD. These next two papers both involve semantic processing, where AD patients tend to have trouble encoding the meaning behind words. Paper number 8 is titled, Preserved Extrafoveal Processing of Object Semantics in Alzheimer's Disease. It's from the Journal of Geriatric Psychiatry and Neurology by first author Chiminella from the University of Edinburgh, and last author Coco from the University of East London, both from the UK. 
This current study looked at whether the semantic processing deficit in AD results from a general loss of semantic knowledge or from difficulty in accessing the specific information from their memory. To do so, the authors used an eye-tracking visual search task on 20 AD patients and the same number of healthy controls. The participant had to look for a target object among a series of distractors, either related or unrelated to the target. As you might expect, both groups struggled with detecting objects that were mixed with semantically related distractors as compared to unrelated, and this was more prominent in the AD group. Both cohorts looked at the target objects earlier and for a longer duration when they were semantically unrelated to the distractors. From these results, the authors suggest that AD patients are able to process the meaning behind objects and that their impairments in semantic processing may result from deficits in accessing stored information rather than due to memory loss. We're almost at the end, just two more studies left. Paper number 9 is another semantic dementia study from the journal Frontiers in Psychiatry, titled Emotional Comparison Between Semantic Dementia and Alzheimer's Disease. It's by first author Wang and last author Liu, both from the Shanghai Jiao Tong University School of Medicine in China. The study is from the journal Frontiers in Psychiatry. In their intro, the authors differentiate patients with semantic dementia from those with typical AD, where the former would have trouble remembering the meaning behind words, and the latter would show a more general loss of memory and cognitive ability. They go on to explain that while both forms of dementia involve impairments in emotional processing, the severity and type of emotional symptoms has yet to be distinguished between the two groups. Using a bunch of different questionnaires that I'm not going to list here, they measured apathy, empathy, depression, and anxiety. According to the authors, there were significant differences in empathy scores between patients with semantic dementia and those with AD. However, no differences were found in the other emotional measures. Next up, I personally found this last paper to be very interesting as it focuses on sleep profiles as a potential biomarker of AD. If you're interested in learning more about sleep and circadian rhythms in AD, you should definitely check out our Cognitive and Behavioral Changes episode hosted by Ellen Kosh and released in two parts. These are episodes number 171 and 174. Part 2 has a section on sleep and circadian rhythms. Now back to the last paper of this episode, titled Sleep Profile Predicts the Cognitive Decline of Mild-Moderate Alzheimer's Disease Patients. It's from the journal Sleep by first author Targa, who is from the University Hospital Arnau de Villanova in Spain, and last author Pignol Ripoll, who is from the Santa Maria University Hospital, also in Spain. The title is pretty self-explanatory, but this prospective study aimed to explore the relationship between sleep and cognitive decline in patients with mild to moderate AD. The authors performed an overnight polysomnography, which is a type of sleep study where they measure the subject's brain waves, blood oxygen level, and heart rate during sleep, just to name a few of the things they measure. They also collected amyloid beta and tau levels from cerebral spinal fluid and conducted neuropsychological testing at baseline and 12 months follow-up. Using principal component analysis, the researchers were able to separate subjects into either the deep sleeper group or the light sleeper group. I know I would be put in the deep sleeper group for sure. Um, these two groups did not differ in terms of amyloid beta, tau, or cognitive function at baseline. However, at 12 months follow-up, there was a significant decrease in mini mental state examination scores in the light sleeper cohort. The wording of their results section is a little tricky, so be sure to read the full paper if you're interested in learning more. 
Reminder that you can find that in our show notes. The author suggests that sleep profile could potentially be used to predict cognitive decline in patients with mild to moderate AD. And we've made it to the end. I hope you guys learned something new in today's May 2021 Clinical and Motor Indicators of AD episode. Remember, you can find any of the papers we went over today in our bibliography, which you can find in the episode notes or at aminder.com. This is actually the last episode of our May 2021 series. We've had a lot of episodes with a ton of different topics from our many talented hosts, so I recommend going back and pursuing those episodes while you wait for our next series to start. We'll also be releasing the bibliographies for any topics we didn't cover in full episodes this month soon, so keep your eye out for that on our bibliographies drive, which you can find the link for in the show notes or directly on our website. The next series, covering papers from June 2021, will be starting after a couple of weeks break. We haven't set the first episode release date yet, but I can tell you that it'll either be July 26th or August 2nd, so keep your eyes out for that on our podcast app. You can also find updates on our social media pages, which are Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. If you have any comments or suggestions for the podcast, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, or wherever you're listening from. We really appreciate the feedback as this allows us to reach more listeners who'd benefit from the show, so thank you in advance. And we're still recruiting new members, so if you'd like to join our team, please send your CV to aminderpodcast at gmail.com. Lastly, I'd like to thank the entire sorting team for sorting the May 2021 papers, Ellen Kosh for reviewing my script and editing the recording, Sarah Luati for reviewing the episode and making the bibliography, and Anusha Kamesh, as always, for making the music. You can find her on YouTube under AK Music or SoundCloud under her name. Thank you so much for joining me in today's episode. We hope you find this podcast useful and accessible, and look forward to having you back soon.